Well, if you are a first through fourth grader or a fifth grade backstager, you can make your way to O Kids right now. So let the stampede begin. And as our kids are making their way to O Kids, uh, if you're here in the room on campus and you are willing and able, would you please stand this morning? As you stand this morning, we stand out of respect for God's words for us. And you can follow along on the screen as I read our scripture passage on which our sermon is based today from the Gospel of John. Uh, Friends, these words are utterly true and given to us in love. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, though, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to say happy Easter uh, to those here on campus, those joining us online. It's wonderful to be together. Uh, If you're new with us, I'm really glad that you are here. Uh, Since the fall, we've been in a sermon series looking at the various encounters people had with Jesus in the Gospels. And starting next week, we'll begin a new sermon series called Undeniable Witness. We'll be looking at encounters people had with Jesus after his resurrection. You know, I encounter people a lot of times when I have conversation with them about Jesus, about his resurrection. Uh, They're surprised to learn that uh, he spent a a considerable amount of days on the earth after his resurrection seeing people. Uh, The Apostle Paul uh, wrote in his letter called 1 Corinthians, uh, which was 20 years after the resurrection of Jesus, so very historically reliable. The Apostle Paul talked in that letter, and he he said that Jesus appeared to 500 men. (laughs) You you read it and go, what? 500 men? That's not even counting the women that he appeared to. So there was a a massive crowd of people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. And we'll start looking at some of those encounters next week. So I invite you back to join us. But today we find ourselves 
at the pinnacle of the Christian story and the celebration of Easter. And the reason we love Easter so much, besides the chocolate and the bunny and the pastels, we love Easter because of the hope, because of the hope. And if there was ever a year where we needed some hope, it's this year after what we've experienced, after what we've gone through. I've read several articles recently talking about what this last year has been. Uh, the rise in depression, anxiety, fear, loneliness, isolation, exhaustion, a, a sense of always feeling overwhelmed. All of these on the rise this past year. And worst of all, that we think that we are the only one dealing with it. Uh, worst of all, that we think we're the only ones who are struggling. We're the only ones here desperately in need of hope. And the good news, friends, is we're all here in need of hope, all looking for hope. And our passage today invites you to see a life where hope is right around the corner. Three things we must take stock in if we want to find this kind of hope in our lives. First, go to the tomb. Second, examine the evidence. And finally, make a decision. Let's look first at go to the tomb. Go to the tomb. We read this in verse one. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. I don't mean to be trite on Easter morning, but uh, we really have to establish that this of a forced importance, the historical nature of this account. Uh, you have to come to an actual tomb. You have to come to where an actual body was laid. You have to come to a place where someone has died the death of Rome's most historical method of capital punishment known as crucifixion. Friends, we must all come to the tomb. You see, we live in a day where mostly when we think of Easter, we think of Easter as lovely, as celebration, as it has all the wonderful feels of life. I heard a story about one Christian family. They were out hiking in the woods. Uh, the mom and the daughter, the daughter was a little bit older, um, but she was off ahead with mom and they were several, several uh, yards ahead of the dad and the four-year-old boy. And they were walking slow as you would with any four-year-old boy. And this son says to his daddy to begin the conversation, Hey daddy, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And this dad was blown away by his son's knowledge, blown away actually by his incredible parenting. Uh, look, look, look at my son. Look what he, at his age at four, look what he knows. Look at what I've done. You know, you do this. We all do this. But he, he wanted to press in a little more on his son's statement. And he said, that's right, buddy. He did die on the cross for your sins. And what happened next? What, what happened next? The four-year-old got very quiet. He pondered. He was thinking, you could tell, for quite a bit. And all of a sudden, you could see his face getting very excited, very excited about the hope and what he was going to answer. So the dad repeated his question. So, buddy, what happens next after the cross? And this unashamed four-year-old 
yells out in a loud voice. And then the bunny brings me candy. Easter means many things to all of us. Chocolate, bunnies, pastels, maybe in that order. We love the feel of Easter, all the feels, but we have to understand it began in a tomb. It began in a tomb. Have you gone to the tomb? Have you looked in? We can't have Easter without it. We must go to the tomb. But we can't just go to the tomb. That's what we see in our passage. We have to second, we have to examine the evidence. Examine the evidence. That's our second invitation. This is what it says in verse six. Then Simon Peter came following John and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there. Our passage tells us that Simon Peter saw. Now, this is a different word from what we read in verse one, where it tells us Mary saw. It's actually a different Greek word altogether. The word here of Simon Peter saw is the word theoreo. You can maybe hear the English word that's buried underneath that. He theorized, theoreo. He pondered, he reasoned, he examined. I encounter a lot of people today who have issues with Christianity. And one of the issues they believe is that Christianity is anti-intellectual. Uh, if you're going to be a Christian with all of your questions, you just simply need to bury your head in the sand. But friends, that's not what we see in our passage. He leaned in. He examined the evidence. First of all, the resurrection goes against everything they knew about the world at that time. Here's the assumption that they were working from. I think it's a pretty good assumption, but maybe you differ. This is their assumption. Dead people usually stay dead. I read a story about a Presbyterian minister who worked in Minnesota. Uh, one of his jobs was to travel to rural communities where he would perform the funerals for areas that didn't have a pastor. And he would go out with the undertaker and they would drive together in the undertaker's hearse. One time they were on their way back from a funeral and this minister was feeling quite tired. He decided he was going to take a nap. And since they were in the hearse, he thought, well, I'll just lay down in the back of the hearse. Kind of creepy, I would say, but this is a true story. The guy who was driving the hearse pulled into the service station because he was running low on gas. The service station attendant was filling up the tank and he was kind of freaked out because he saw there was a body stretched out in the back while he was filling up the tank. The minister woke up. He opened his eyes, knocked on the window and waved at the attendant. <laughs> Eyewitnesses say they've never seen someone run away so fast from any scene. Why? Because dead people usually stay dead. The resurrection went against everything they knew about the world, but it also went against every, up against everything they knew about the Bible. What sometimes happens, and you know you do this, you know you do this, we'll say things like this. Oh, those ancient people, nice people, sweet, sweet people, but they were more susceptible to legends, way more gullible to stories like resurrections. They were not as intelligent as a modern person like me. You know you do it. 
we all do it. But I want you to know it was just as hard for these three characters in this story, if not harder. Why? Well, what we know about the Hebrew Bible is they longed for a day when God would bring a physical resurrection at the end of the ages, at the end of time. That at the end of time, God would make all things right. He would put all things back together, all the brokenness of this world. He will bring a physical resurrection at the end of time. That's what they believed. But no one, and I mean no one, believed that there would be a physical resurrection in the middle of history. It, made, it went against everything they knew. It, it was impossible for them to believe that. It went against everything they knew about the world and their Bible. You can actually see the skepticism in our passage uh, Mary, throughout our passage, is not questioning where is the resurrected Jesus. No, throughout our passage, to the very end, she's wondering who took his body. Where did they lay him? What have they done with him? She has no ounce of faith that he is resurrected. She has only come to this tomb to finish the burial process that she began Friday night before Sabbath. Now, you may be saying, yes, Tyler, I see from this passage, but the Bible is corrupted. It's filled with legends. It's just a story. It's just made up. Maybe that's you today. Maybe that's you. But it is obvious for several reasons that this scene is historical and not legend. Why? Well, first, anyone who knows anything about ancient legends knows that every detail to their stories has a theological or narrative purpose. Every detail. And what we find in our passage is the exact opposite. Several frivolous details that serve no point to the larger story. For example, what is it with this competition of running to the tomb? Who gets there first? And what's the point to detailing that in the gospel account? This person ran, this person ran, but this person got there first. This person came a second. This person went in the tomb. Scholars and commentators agree that those details serve no point to this entire passage. The only reason they are there is because it's true. Second, in verse one, it tells us about Mary. She arrived at the tomb. They tell us it was early. It was dark. In the first century, a woman's testimony was not credible in the court of law. But notice all these details. It was early. It was dark. How can we trust her? Well, they can't. You see, we have learned in our modern world that it's important for you to trust the women in your life. We depend on that. If, if you don't, it's going to go bad for you. But in the ancient world... It was not that way. That's why Peter and John are running to this tomb. They don't trust her. They don't believe her. They're actually fulfilling the ancient Jewish law of having two witnesses present to substantiate something. They don't run to this tomb because they believe Jesus rose from the dead. They are running to this tomb because they don't trust this woman. It was dark. It was early. She must have been seeing things. Also notice in verse 16, that the resurrected Jesus reveals himself to, of all people, Mary. Mary. This is substantiated across all gospel accounts, all historical records. If you were making up a legend about Jesus in the first century, and you were wanting it to gain some traction, to gather a following, you never would have had a woman be the first eyewitness to the resurrection because their credibility wasn't held up in the courts. It makes absolutely no sense. It goes against everything you would have been taught in Legend 101. The only reason it is corroborated across all the gospel accounts and throughout history, the only possible reason is because it's true. It's because it's true. 
Finally, notice the scene that Peter saw where it says he examined the evidence. He walks into the tomb. He sees the linens all folded up. He reasoned. He theoreoed. He theorized. He thought to himself, this doesn't, this doesn't add up. This doesn't add up. He knows it couldn't have been an outside job to remove Jesus' body for two reasons. First, no one would have taken the linens off a dead body and carried it out. That one is obvious. But second, no one in the first century would have left the spices and the linens behind because they were so expensive. They cost so much in the open market. It would have been if, if today you had kidnapped somebody, not saying you should do that, but if you did, that you, as you were kidnapping them, you would take off the Rolex watch and their iPhone and you would leave that behind because you don't need that. In the same way, the only reason the body was of value was because of the linens that Jesus was wrapped in. Peter theorizes. He examined the evidence. It doesn't add up. Can't be an outside job. But also, it couldn't be an inside job. Meaning Jesus wasn't passed out and then he somehow regained his consciousness. No, he would have had to tear through those linens to get out. They wouldn't have been nice and neatly folded as we see in our passage. How does he get out without destroying those linens? The only answer is the resurrection. He passed through those linens like he passed through walls post-resurrection. Also, these tombs in the first century had a special locking feature, standard operating procedure, where the tomb could only be opened from the outside. Are these legends? Are these legends? Our, pas our passage does not have the format of legends. It does not have the details of legends, and it certainly does not have the character of legends. Listen to C.S. Lewis. He was a literature scholar in Britain. This is what he said. We turn to the Gospel of John. I have been reading poems, romances, vision, literature, legends, myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know that not one of them is like this. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is the reportage of facts or else some unknown writer in the second century without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned to read. Now, I know it's hard to listen to Lewis behind his very, very smug tone, very British, very smug subtext. What he's saying is, if you don't see things the way I see them, then you clearly haven't learned to read. So if we can put aside the smug tone, but we need to listen to Lewis. He was a scholar in literature. He taught at Oxford and Cambridge. He's telling us that the Bible does not look like the legends of the first century. Rather, it looks like the reporting of facts. Have you examined the evidence? Have you looked in the tomb? Have you reasoned? Well, then and only then can you receive the last invitation from our passage, and it's this. We all have to make a decision. We have to make a decision. The three characters in our story show us the two decisions that we can make about the resurrection and the two decisions that we can't. What do I mean? Well, first, Peter comes to this situation he comes to the tomb. He examines the evidence. But what we learn in the gospel of Luke is that Peter leaves the tomb 
and he doesn't believe. He doesn't believe. And maybe that's you this morning. You don't believe. Uh, You've come to the tomb. uh, You've examined the evidence, but you still have a lot of questions about Christianity. You're still pondering, still thinking. That's one response. You just still don't believe. And you, like Peter, are still thinking through the claims of Christianity. Maybe that's you. Then we see the decision of John and Mary. John went to the tomb. He examined the evidence. And it tells us in verse eight, he saw and believed. He saw and believed. In the same way, Mary, in the moment she first encounters the risen Jesus, she simply said, Rabboni, Rabboni, which means teacher. Now, don't think teacher like you're thinking lectures, pop quizzes, cramming for exams. No, in the first century, Rabboni carried with it the idea that you were surrendering your life and your life's trajectory to a certain person because you believe they deserved your allegiance. You could say that Rabboni is better translated master or king. It is coming to the end of yourself and your plans for how you think your life should go. We see in the lives of Peter, John, and Mary, the two decisions that we can make about the resurrection. We can leave the tomb and we're still processing like Peter, whether we believe a man actually rose from the dead in the middle of history. It's a massive claim with many complexities. It's a bold claim about what life is. And some of you are there and I get that. You still question what actually happened 2000 years ago. On the other hand, we can examine the evidence and believe. And the only appropriate response then is Rabboni. Rabboni. Jesus, you are the king of my life. I confess that I've tried to be king and it has not gone so well for me. And so I'm going to surrender to you my life and my life's trajectory because you know better. These are the two decisions we can make. But then there are two decisions that we cannot make, at least not from this passage. First, we can't come cavalierly. What do I mean? You see, one decision that isn't allowed in our passage, someone who comes to the tomb, they examine the evidence, they believe Jesus rose from the dead, and then they carry on with their life as if they are still in control. That's not one decision we can make from this passage. The second decision you cannot make is to not come to the tomb at all. What do I mean? Some of you, I know, carry major regrets from your life. Failures in your life that feel the shame that comes almost up to your throat. You believe you are beyond saving. There are some of you who hesitate to come to the tomb. You hesitate even to be here this morning. There are some of you that you know everything in your life that you've done a pretty poor job of running and being in control, but you wonder, will Jesus ever greet you at the tomb? Will Jesus greet me at the tomb? You're thinking, will he be there? This last year has been rough for you. This last week may have been rough. And you're thinking this whole time, will Jesus greet me at the tomb? Will he greet me like he greeted Mary? When I have nothing to offer, when I have blown it, when I have made a mess of things, maybe that's you this morning asking that. But I want you to hear the good news of Easter. 
Christianity has never been about what you can do. Uh, Listen, uh, Peter, just a few days earlier from this scene, Peter has denied Jesus three times when he is asked by multiple people, do you know this man? Peter is a coward and a sleaze to save his own skin. And he's at the tomb. John's nickname was Son of Thunder. Now, nobody knows exactly what Son of Thunder means, but everyone knows it is not good. It could be related to him being a workaholic, career-advancing weasel. It could be that John had a temper that clears the room. It could be his speech is harsh, direct, and insensitive. But the Son of Thunder is at the tomb. And then there's Mary. Mary, we know, was a prostitute before she met Jesus. She had lost count with how many men she had given her body to and the insecurity of whether she would ever be enough. But Mary is at the tomb. No matter what you have gone through, Christianity is the story of how God takes the broken the disheveled, the poorly put together, and right in the middle of all of their mess, he brings resurrection. He brings resurrection. And if you come to the tomb, you examine, you see, and believe. There is a hope, no matter what grave you may feel like you are in, because resurrection is just around the corner. When you call out Rabboni, The power of resurrection begins to work backwards in your life, redeeming all the broken places in your story. And hope begins to bring life where you only thought there was death in your story. In the great book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we learn about Aslan. He's the great lion, the roaring lion. Aslan is C.S. Lewis's Christ figure in the story. Yes, you get C.S. Lewis twice in one sermon. You're welcome. In the story, Edmund, one of the sons of Adam, has lost his way in life. Uh, He's made a mess of things, not only for himself, but for the people he loves. Edmund thought there is no fixing the damage he had caused. And he was right. He could not fix the damage but the lion could only by dying in his place, only by bearing the sin and the shame of the life he had lived. Aslan is led to the stone table where he is beaten, mocked and killed in Edmund's place. But friends, resurrection is just around the corner. As the sun rises, Susan, Lucy, Edmund's sisters, who had watched Aslan's murder from afar, they hear a loud crack on the stone table as it's broken in two, but there is no Aslan. Who's done it, cried Susan. Where's Aslan? What, What does this mean? Is this more magic? Yes. Yes, says a loud, deep voice from behind them. It's more magic. Aslan is alive. He's not a ghost. He's real. He licks Susan's forehead. The girls are overjoyed uh, in his presence. They begin to kiss him and hug him repeatedly. And when they calm down, Susan asks, but what does this all mean? 
But what does this all mean? And this is what we read. It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still, which she did not know. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Friends, there's a deeper magic. There's a deeper magic birthing right in the middle of the brokenness of this world and right in the middle of the mess of your life. But there's hope right around the corner if we would see and believe. And what Jesus has accomplished will begin to work backwards, filling up all the places of pain in your life that you have carried, all the insecurities that never seem to go away, all the sadness of dreams unfulfilled, all the loneliness that clings too close. And in the midst of all of that death, the table has cracked because Jesus has put death to death. And what is true of him is now true of you. If we will see and believe the only question left the only decision left is, do you want that? Do you want that? Happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Our Father, instill in us the hope of a resurrection right in the middle of the brokenness of this world and right in the middle of the mess of our lives. Remind us of your great love that has put death to death and is working backwards to bring resurrection to all the places we need it this morning. That the good news is there is one who has come and he is risen. He is risen indeed. It's in Jesus' name we do pray, and everyone said, amen, amen.